The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. While the angel's visitation to Mary, the pregnancy of Mary, even the birth of Christ itself, can take on an almost fairy tale quality in our minds, it's essential to remember that these are matters of historical fact. St. Luke intentionally states that the document he wrote, which we call his gospel, was written to be an historically accurate account of what occurred. Luke even states that he relies on eyewitness testimony. In fact, it's all but certain that one of those eyewitnesses was Mary herself. Many of the details recorded in Luke are things only Mary could have known. Quite naturally, she was startled by the encounter with the angel, causing the angel to say, do not be afraid. In particular, it was the angel's greeting that troubled her most. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It's not the kind of greeting the cashier at the grocery store gives you. And here we see one of the most blessed and charming aspects of Mary's personality, her plain Jane humility. Mary doesn't think herself to be anything special. Not during the angel's announcement, when she's troubled by how she's greeted. Not at her child's birth. Note that she isn't yelling and screaming at Joseph when she has to lay her firstborn into a trough. Not during the angel's, um, excuse me, and not even during her son's death and resurrection or thereafter. Never does she see herself especial. Never does she turn herself into some kind of celebrity or rewrite her remembrances to make her seem as if she knew everything all along. Perhaps the most noble and beloved trait of Mary of all is simply her humility. She sees herself as blessed by God, whether that is joy or whether that is suffering. While the angel goes on to tell her his message, how she had found favor in God's sight, how she will conceive a child whose name will be Jesus, who will be called the Son of the Most High, who will reign on David's throne forever, she simply takes it all in by faith. Her only question, asking how these things will come to pass since she is yet a virgin, and is only yet betrothed to Joseph. The angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In the plainest sense, the angel tells her that this child would have no earthly father and would not come as the result of her union with Joseph or with any other man. But why does the angel phrase it in this way? Why this particular choice of words? 
I guess the next question would be, do you think you could have done better? The incarnation is a mystery impossible to describe. And the angel's words have been interpreted throughout the centuries in myriad ways. As I've grown older, <laughs> as a Christian and a pastor, I've come to see that God's word is like this. It is delightfully, and I believe intentionally, ambiguous in certain places so that more and more can be taken out of it. The Holy Spirit will come upon her, the angel says. The power of the Most High will overshadow her. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Perhaps the first realization we might have is the obvious. We see the entire Trinity involved in the Incarnation. If St. Augustine is correct that the Holy Spirit, while being a person of the Holy Trinity, is also the love between the Father and the Son, then what a glorious picture we see. Mary is enveloped, not in the desire of a man for her, and certainly not in the desire of God for her. Yahweh is no Zeus, and this is no Greek myth. It is rather the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, this eternal love that envelops Mary, comes upon her and powerfully overshadows her, such that the Son, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, is now conceived from the substance of his mother in this age as the Athanasian Creed states. Augustine likes to think of these as two begettings. One begetting outside of time and one begetting inside of time. Inside of Mary's womb, it's not that God ceases to be fully God and thus becomes man. It's not a conversion of the divinity into flesh, but rather it is the assumption of humanity into God. He who is true God is also true man. The embryo, as it were, in Mary's womb is equal to the Father with respect to his divinity and less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Not two, but one Christ. As once again, the Athanasian Creed tells us that the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, encompasses her, envelops her, shows that the child is not born of any kind of lust, but rather of purest love. Purest love of father for son, yes, of son for father, yes, but also, and most importantly for us, the love of God for man. For the entire purpose of the son becoming man is that he might be the savior of man. That as a man, he might win man, and in human flesh, make atonement for human sin and by his mortality, bring life and immortality to light. As the unborn king, 
and as the newborn king, we see that he is Lord and Savior also of the littlest, the youngest, the least, precisely those whom so many in our culture despise. The Holy Spirit envelops Mary and the embryo in her womb. And this enveloping, this coming upon, this overshadowing is the context in which the Son is conceived. It is the language and imagery that we also find elsewhere in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the sea at the dawn of creation. The name Mary at root means sea. And so we might perceive in the angel's words an allusion to the dawning of a new creation in which the Holy Spirit hovers not over the sea, but over a woman. And God is no longer merely a creator of man, but has become man himself. A church father by the name of Theophanes sees in the angel's words an allusion to the tabernacle and temple and the Holy Spirit coming upon these and enveloping these as God becomes present within. A similar point is made with the Ark of the Covenant, inside of which, you might remember, the word became stone. Here is Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant in which the word becomes flesh. But if these things strike you either as too wonderful or too difficult for a Wednesday night, we can simply follow that brilliant finger of Martin Luther as he takes us back to utmost simplicity. The Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit because he makes things holy. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, envelops her, so that the humanity that the Son receives through her is also holy, so that he would be made in every way like us except unto sin, and precisely so that he could bear our sin as the unblemished lamb. What then does the Holy Spirit have to do with Christmas? Well, everything. Not only do we see the Holy Spirit's work in the Incarnation itself, we also see his work in that theological masterpiece, the Magnificat, which Mary pens and sings, and we also will get to sing it in just a few moments. But we see the Spirit's work also in the faithfulness of Joseph to stand by Mary, whom he certainly didn't impregnate, we see his, the Holy Spirit's work and the zeal of the shepherds as they come to the manger and later in the visitation of the wise men as they come bearing gifts. Indeed, we see the Spirit's work every time our Lord and his word are received in faith and joy. Thus, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the Holy Spirit is work at here in our midst. No hoots or hollering, no one rolling around on the floor, no one babbling in strange made-up language, no one receiving a word or prophecy, none of this, simply the Holy Spirit working in quiet humility 
just as he did on the quiet and humble Mary, so he does in quiet and humble Christian hearts. We, like Mary, treasure these things and ponder them in our hearts. Perhaps one of the greatest failings of Western Christianity is failing to see any virtue or any value in simply keeping the things of God in our hearts, pondering them, treasuring them, marveling at them, rejoicing in them. These aren't means to some pragmatic end. Pondering, treasuring, marveling at, rejoicing in, these things are the end themselves. They are a foretaste of that heavenly bliss when we will see God face to face. Such meditations can at times take on an almost fairy tale quality. And, well, they should. The good news from heaven announcing our Savior's birth brings more joy and a happier ending than any fairy tale ever could. But even so, we must not forget that the events themselves are quite real, historical, and factual. We must remember this because our sins certainly are no fairy tale. The damage, the heartache, the pain, and the sorrow are all too real and all too serious, every bit as real as the flesh of Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, every bit as real as the flesh of Jesus nailed, with, nailed to the cross and pierced with spear. It is real flesh that made atonement for your sins and real blood that now cleanses you from all your sin. So let us repent in humility this Advent, agreeing with God that his judgment is right. Evil is evil. We want to be forgiven. We want to be set free. And in Jesus, we are and we shall be. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And thus it is by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is conceived within us and dwells within us. The true Christmas spirit, the only Christmas spirit worth anything at all, is the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs>